If you'll turn to Luke 12 in your Bibles, that'll get you prepared. I want to start by talking about a human impulse. It's in all of us, and uh, it's kind of as normal as breathing. It's actually a process, and that is that we all have desires, like just, you know, it can be standing in front of the fridge deciding what you're going to eat, picking a job, or Uh, buying a car or whatever it might be, but we all have these desires and then we have this pursuit. And that usually involves some planning and some preparation, like how am I gonna get what I want? And then the day comes for acquisition. We go after it, we get it, we buy it, we uh, take it, whatever it is. So, So all of us have this thing in us, desire, pursuit, and acquisition, and and all by itself, nothing wrong with it at all. But the thing desired, that might be a problem. Or our motivation for having it, that could also be a problem, couldn't it? Or the means by which we get it. Like all of that could be really wrong. And then all of a sudden, this very normal human impulse becomes very dangerous. Uh, the best illustration in the world, we actually talked about this in November, remember when we looked at Genesis 3, and uh, I won't go over the whole story again, but here's Eve in front of a tree, and this serpent has been telling her things about that tree, and about God, and about her, and here's what she say. think about this impulse, so when she saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. What did she do? She took of it and ate. There's the process. But we would say, what a disaster. It changed everything. A little less dramatic, uh, think about our kids. (laughs) Uh, They don't have to be taught to desire and to pursue and to acquire things. They don't really have a filter for deciding whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea. We wouldn't say that children have a lot of wisdom or discernment about practicing this impulse. Proverbs 22 says that foolishness or folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That's why they need parents to help them begin to learn to discern whether or not their impulses are good or bad. Now, unfortunately, foolishly acting upon our impulses isn't something that we just grow out of, is it? So grown-ups can act foolishly. Grown-ups can desire something and make a plan, prepare to get it, and then go get it for themselves, and it be a horrible, horrible failure. Uh, You could call it sophisticated depravity. Here's what it sounds like. Gimme! Gimme! Like a little child. Like, I just want, want you to give it to me. That's exactly where we pick up the story in Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Can you kind of hear it? If I said it in a whiny voice, 
teacher, tell my brother to give me my stuff. Now keep in mind, Jesus and his men are still surrounded by that unruly crowd. Remember, they're all pressing in. They want to see and hear what Jesus has to say. And he's given them a pretty sobering lesson already about the danger of hypocrisy. If you didn't catch that, we hit it last week. So it's feeling probably a little bit weighty at the moment. Jesus urged these people to live in the light, to confess those things that are going on in unseen places, to fear the Lord instead of fearing man. He talked about trusting the Holy Spirit to enable and equip them when they are called upon to be a witness. So again, there's this real sobriety. And then in the middle of all that noise, verse 13, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And I, I don't know what happened, but I could imagine everybody just kind of looking at this guy like, what? Did you just hear what he was talking about? It seems from the request that the brother is probably close by. You don't imagine this guy telling Jesus to talk to his brother and his brother's not there. So you can imagine these two brothers in front of Jesus. There's obviously a dispute over the inheritance. And this is probably the younger brother because he's not in the position of power. See, the older brother is the executor of the estate and in things like an inheritance. So probably the younger brother, and he's either um, dissatisfied with his portion, or maybe he actually got shortchanged. Maybe his big brother just said, you know what? Sorry, man, um, I'm not gonna give you what you're supposed to get. Whatever the reason, in public, surrounded by an unruly crowd, right in front of Jesus, this, this younger brother wants some help. So he asks Jesus to tell his brother what to do for his benefit. He must have been surprised by how Jesus responded. Look at verse 14. Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And that word you there is plural. So he's sort of talking to both brothers. And then he turns to the crowd, it seems, and he says, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I'm sure there is nothing about that 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 younger brother expected. This isn't only a refusal by Jesus, it's actually a gracious but very direct rebuke. He doesn't go right at the guy, but it's very obvious to everybody. Something about what that guy just said got some correction. And so everybody's listening. Now, surely Jesus knows a little more about what's going on here than he lets on by what he says. That's kind of what Jesus does. And he just always kind of knows what people are thinking, what their motives are, all that, that stuff going on behind the scenes. But another threat surfaces in the mind of Christ, and he says, I'm going to go after that. This is a beautiful, teachable moment 
just like hypocrisy was, now we're going to take on a new topic, the topic of covetousness. There's an interesting wordplay in this give and take between the brother and Jesus. The man asks Jesus to divide his inheritance. Do you see that? And then when Jesus responds, he says, man, who made me, who appointed me as judge or arbitrator over you? That word arbitrator literally means to divide. So it's sort of like Jesus is saying, you're asking me to divide your inheritance and I didn't come to do that kind of stuff. I did come to divide, however. I am a divider. That is what I do. I just don't worry about things as small as an inheritance. Actually, later in this chapter, it's interesting, verse 51 through 53, listen to what Jesus says about what he was appointed to do. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. See, Jesus is a polarizing figure. Now, he's not just trying to turn people on each other. It's that he is one in all of history in whom people either accept or reject, and whatever side they land on, that puts them in opposition to those on the other side. They're divided. Do you remember in, in chapter 11, he said, whoever is not with me is what? Against me. So he stands right in the middle. He is the division between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. He is a divider. He just doesn't spend his time dividing inheritances, at least not earthly ones. So he refuses to divide this man's inheritance because he asks for too little and all for the wrong reasons. He does get into this man's motive, although we don't know what that is quite yet. Now look at the warning that follows. This is a clue that there's something wrong. He says to everyone, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now that word um, you can also translate as greed or avarice. This is certainly considered one of, like in church history, it was one of the seven deadlies. You'll find it in a lot of lists, sin lists in our New Testament. You'll, you'll see this show up. It's literally a desire to have more. Now, all by itself, that might seem like, well, so we can't ever desire more of anything? Well, I don't know. Maybe you can decide by the end of this sermon. But that's what it means. It's specifically an inordinate desire for material things. It's an insatiable craving. This is what Jesus saw in the, in the heart of that man who simply asked for him to divide his inheritance. But there's more to the story. Think about the context of where that request came. 
So this brother asks Jesus to divide his inheritance publicly. That would have been a gross humiliation to his older brother, perhaps even a humiliation for his whole family. He's talking to Jesus. This isn't just some Joe on the street. He's talking to Jesus, who he considers to be a rabbi, a teacher, he called him, who has authority, and he's telling the one in authority what to do. And then, if that weren't enough, he has totally disregarded every other person in the crowd. I mean, weren't we just talking about hypocrisy? (laughs) Hold on, Jesus. I want you to stop your teaching for just a moment. Hey, everybody, just hold on for a second. I've got a personal matter. I need you to talk to my brother. I mean, it, it would be a little bit like we're all at a you know, a Tim Keller conference on the meaning of marriage and some guy stands up and says, hey, Tim, I appreciate your teaching, but would you talk to my wife and just tell her to submit to me? That's what this feels like. Everybody would be a little bit like, whoa, man, you're kind of stepping out here. Simple desire becomes coveting when it is unbridled and self-absorbed. And that's what that request is all about. He's oblivious to what's going on around him. He's thinking only about himself. Now, perhaps Jesus was just directing those words at these two brothers, maybe specifically the younger brother. It doesn't seem like that. seems like there might be a reason for us to catch it, certainly his disciples to catch it. So why should we be so vigilant? Sounds like this is really dangerous. He gives an answer to that question in his second statement. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The only reason that he would say that is because certainly this younger brother, but certainly that crowd, certainly his disciples, certainly you and I could believe that life is found in our stuff. Otherwise, he wouldn't say it. Life is a thing to be desired and pursued and acquired. But gathering up stuff will never get it for us. Regardless of how much we might believe that it will. Covetousness actually takes over that natural desire, that natural impulse that we have, and it begins to distort it. It it, it really is a deception where we look to earthly things to give us what only God and heaven can provide. So it is a very dangerous deception. To illustrate the seriousness of this and to help his, uh, his disciples understand, he tells a parable. Now, in your Bible, you'll probably see a header, uh, the parable of the rich fool. That's a little bit confrontational. (laughs) I'm going to, you know, make it a little more mild. That's not inspired, by the way, those headers in your Bible. I'm going to call it the test of prosperity. It's a test that all of us, especially living in the United States of America in 2020, we all face this test in one way or another. So let me read this to you. 
beginning in verse 16 and then getting down to 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's work our way through this parable and see what Jesus was trying to communicate to this crowd. First of all, he introduces a wealthy farmer and an abundant harvest. So this, this man in verse 16 is prosperous. The test is, what do you do with more than you need? So can we all kind of find our place in that? I mean, you may have much more or much less than I do. But can we all say that for the most part, we probably have more than we literally need to live on? Is that fair? Okay, good. So what do you do with more than you need? Here's his solution. Or I'm sorry, here's the problem for the farmer. He has nowhere to store his crops. Okay? So he's had this huge harvest, stuff everywhere. And he says there's nowhere to store the crops. Now, as I read that in verse 17, I was thinking that could mean a couple of things. It could literally mean that his barns are filled to the brim and he just harvested all of his crops and he literally has nowhere to put it. That's one option. Um, it seems unlikely to me, but it's possible. Uh, it could be that um, he's exaggerating a little bit as he's processing this dilemma in his mind. He's, he's saying, I don't, have, I don't have anywhere to put my crops, sort of like if you walk into your closet that is full of clothes and you think, I don't have anything to wear. <laughs> well, actually you do. Maybe you don't have anything you want to wear. There's a difference. So could be his barns are just slammed full. It could be that he's just exaggerating a little bit. It could be that this guy who's got it all and more than enough, he has some idea in his mind what barns ought to look like for a guy as great as him. And as he looks around and he sees, I got barns all over my property. But you know what? I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty big guy. And I think I ought to have bigger barns than the ones I've got. 
You know what I think I'll do? I'll tear down those little old barns that I have and I'm gonna build some big ones that all my friends and family, everybody around can see my big barns full of stuff. I think I might lean toward that understanding based upon the fact that Jesus, remember, is talking about covetousness, wanting more, being insatiable with that craving. That's his solution. I'll tear down my existing barns and build bigger ones. Now, let's give him the benefit of the doubt before he hangs himself. Um, At this stage, he could just be doing some good planning. Apparently, he's a good farmer. Things have been going well. Maybe he's just preparing like Proverbs 6 says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Maybe he's just a good planner. Maybe he's just solving a problem. But there's some things about his discussion with himself that are a little bit suspicious. First of all, notice that he's only talking to himself. God is nowhere in the conversation. He is not talking to God about his situation. And then secondly, he's not talking to anybody that the Proverbs might call wise counsel. See, you and I, (laughs) when we're just talking to ourselves, we can talk ourselves into anything. So I'll tell you, a practice that I have, if I'm thinking my own thoughts, one of the things I I try to do is go to men that I respect and that I know will tell me the truth and just say, hey, what do you think about this? And just kind of float it out there and get some feedback, perhaps some correction. Nowhere, nowhere is this guy doing that. He's just talking to himself. Secondly, I don't know if you caught this, but his, his thoughts are saturated with personal pronouns. Did you see that? I, me, mine. Five times I is used, four times my is used. This man is completely absorbed with himself and his stuff. Jesus calls him rich, which is a reference to his earthly possessions. But who owns this man's stuff? Psalm 24, 1. The earth, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and those who dwell therein. That kind of covers it all, doesn't it? Paul asks a question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Now, now think about that for a moment, okay? If I asked you that question, can you really think of something, if God owns it all, that you got on your own? that's, That's what Paul's trying to do with the Corinthians. He's trying to say, listen, I know it seems like You got all this stuff for yourself. That's sort of how it looks on a human perspective. But if it's all God's, then it's all a gift. He gave it to you. You received it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. And 
though you worked and you got paid for your work, we're told that God even gives us the ability to work in order to earn money. So this man is completely unaware of the fact that he is a steward, not an owner. And perhaps Jesus is trying to say, hey, just for a second, remember, stewards answer to owners. So as you're, we're in the parable, as you're thinking about your problem, all these crops and not enough barns, and as you're solving that problem and you're thinking, I'm just going to tear down all these barns and and build newer ones and bigger ones, you might want to check with the owner because you're going to answer to him. He's going to ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? Guys, that's a real day that's going to come for all of us. Everything that we have is the Lord's. Everything that we have has been given to us. And we will answer to God. I I don't mean to, I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm just saying it's just a reality that a day's going to come and you and I will stand before the Lord and he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? And how are you and I going to answer that question? So back to the parable. Here's the why behind the what. So we do get to peer into this man's heart. His core reasons for building bigger barns is to devote himself to himself. He wants to relax, eat, drink, be merry. That, that's kind of the, the headline for hedonism. See, hedonism was a way of thinking that went all the way back to the Greeks, and, and it was this idea that all of life is really in two categories, pain and pleasure. And the whole object of life is to avoid pain and get as much pleasure as you can. So this guy, he's just thinking, if that's my goal in life, then I'm going to get rid of any pain that I might have and I'm going to give myself as much pleasure as I can. And part of that might mean that a day comes, retirement, where I don't have to do anything at all but just enjoy all that I have. All of my life will orbit around making myself happy. Now, back to the owner idea. Do you think that's what God wants us to do with our lives at any point? Or do you think he has a higher purpose for us, a higher aim? This man's life was plagued with an attitude of entitlement instead of one of gratitude. And so he's basically just looking to set himself up. And verse 20 tells us this is an epic fail. The rich farmer, blinded by his unbridled, self-absorbed, craving for more, miscalculated horribly. He wagered everything on the premise that life, real life, could be found in his stuff. He believed that with all of his heart. And then the Lord came and he said, fool, you missed it 
180 degrees. Life will never be found in your stuff. Nothing wrong with stuff. There's actually nothing wrong with enjoying some stuff. But if you think that's where life is found, you will be greatly disappointed. Jesus asks in Mark 8 to a different crowd, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to have everything, and yet lose his own soul? You see, when you put it in perspective, when you, when you start to thinking on God's level instead of our earthly level, we begin to actually see things as they really are. In this brief speck of a life, how much we have is, is of little consequence. It's possible to be deeply satisfied, incredibly fulfilled with very little. And if you don't know that, take a trip to somewhere else in the world. It's amazing to me. Every time a team comes back from Haiti or Uganda or wherever else, the thing that is always said, we were amazed at how much joy these poor people had. So it is possible. It's possible to be full of joy and yet have very little in terms of earthly possessions. Remember, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. If we've ordered our lives around accumulation and self-indulgence, death will be nothing more than a tragic ending. Because we can't take anything with us. And we certainly can't take our stuff to God and go, hey, I'd like to negotiate my eternal terms. Because when we're, when we're done, we're done. And only those things that we did with eternity in mind, with God's purposes in mind, with God's holiness, his greatness, his glory in mind, only those things are going to last and everything else will literally burn up just like that. So where do you want to accumulate? Here or there? Jesus finishes his parable by saying, just like this man was certainly surprised, but came to a place where he couldn't do anything about it, so it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, if you're like me and I came to that phrase, I ask one question. <laughs> How can I be rich toward God? <laughs> right? So here's some thoughts. Let me throw this out to you for consideration. First of all, let's just be real practical. Verse 21, being rich toward God is the opposite of laying up treasure for myself. So just, I mean, just look at your life. Just look at how you do what you do and what you do with what you have and, and, and put it to the test. I, am I doing this primarily for me or am I doing this with a much higher purpose in mind? Secondly, 
being rich toward God is cherishing God above everything else. Bill Bright, I just can't get this out of my head. He would say, it didn't matter what the topic was he was talking about. Somehow he would always work it in. You gotta have God as your first love. So that's a great question. When I look at how I live my life, would it reflect the idea that he is my greatest affection? That I love him more than anything. Being rich toward God is orienting your use of time, talents, and treasure around the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. See, the way we need to make decisions is, does it make me more able or less able to contribute to the redemptive plan of God? That's a great way to make some decisions. Let me read some passages to you very quickly. And uh, if we're thinking, so what today? Um, here's what I don't want you to do. Please don't leave today and just have this general idea. You know what? I ought to be rich toward God. And that's it. Because here's what I can promise you. Because of the dangers of deception, you won't change a thing. You'll just agree with the idea that I ought to be rich toward God. So I want to ask you today to think of something very specific, one thing that ought to change in your life and the way you live and the way you manage your stuff, one thing that you will change. You will say, God, by your grace, help me change this so that I am more aligned with your purposes than I am with my own purposes. Listen to these passages, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, a great warning, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires and plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's what the pursuit of riches will get you. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's the caution. Then later in that same chapter, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there's nothing wrong with enjoying what God has given us. It's just a matter of what are our priorities. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Those good works are primarily for the benefit of the world around us. Be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. One's life is not found in the abundance of your, of your possessions. It is found in aligning us and our stuff with the purposes of God. Take a moment, ask the Lord, what is that one thing
just one thing that you can adjust very practically to apply this truth to your life. Take a few moments if you would.